So when I was in seminary, I went to buy coffee. And there were two different ways that I would buy coffee. One is I would have normal people's money and I would go purchase a coffee with my debit card or a credit card or whatever. The other way is I would scrounge around the house for coins and I would find enough coins to to purchase a coffee. I remember I found a Starbucks that was open at 11.30 one night and I have a picture of all of the pennies that I had found that added up to the number of dollars that I needed to purchase a coffee. And one day I had quarters. I think I stole them from Allison because we needed quarters for laundry, but I probably found quarters somewhere and decided they were mine. So I went and used them to purchase a coffee at the coffee shop at the seminary, and I handed the quarters to the guy who was a friend of mine, and he said, Brock, I can't take these. I was like, why not? He said, half of them are Canadian. (laughs) They look just about the same to me. I didn't pay any attention to it. I don't even know where we got them. It's been a long time since we've been in Canada. But, yes, that was a joke. I know it's Canada. It had been a long time since we had been there, so I have no idea how I ended up with Canadian quarters. They looked the same, but they weren't equal. A few years prior to that, I went on a mission trip to Italy. And if you've ever gone on a mission trip to Italy, uh, you would know what it's sort of like there. It's weird. We were in a town of 100,000 people, and the missionary who had been there for five years knew exactly one person who was a believer. It's crazy. But we had to buy gas to drive to the different places that we were going. And I, and I remember thinking, gas isn't really that much different here than back in Tennessee, which is where we lived. Everyone talked about how expensive it was, but it was 129 euros, which a euro was $1.21 US. But then I realized that it was 129 euros per liter ended up being six fifty a gallon back in 2004. So no matter what complaining we have about gas now, they were paying more than I've ever paid 20 years ago, or nearly 20 years ago. What I thought were equal things were not equal things, right? The scripture is going to give us an equality that is an actual equality, Not an equality that just sort of on the outside appears to be equal, but is actually equal in every respect. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and it's again Paul writing, and he says this, For this reason I, Paul, and a prisoner of Sorry, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me 
by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's an odd passage. It's a great passage. But it's an odd passage because it it almost feels like it doesn't really connect to the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is all about about grace and salvation through faith and then this unity. And now he goes into this this odd shift to a mystery. And I love a good mystery. If I'm going to watch a movie, I'd rather watch something where I don't feel like I know the end as soon as it starts. Which is why I'm not a big Hallmark movie fan. They're not bad. They're not usually something that I'm offended by or, or I'm offended that my kids watched, but, but you pretty much know the end as soon as you start the movie. You just have to see who is the first guy you see, who is the first girl you see. They're going to end up together. There's going to be trouble in the middle. He did something bad. Anyway, that's the Hallmark movie theme. I'd rather not know how it ends. I'd rather have, have this time during the movie or during the book where I say, I don't know how this is going to work. This doesn't appear like it's going to play out the way that I assumed it was going to. And God has a mystery for us here. But the mystery is not the sort of mystery that is, that is just a plot twist. This is a plot upending right? There are times where, where plots take a turn and we go, okay, that, that was unexpected. And then there are times where the end of the movie undoes everything you thought you knew about what was going on. And, and that's what happens here. This mystery that God reveals, this mystery that he has is there for a purpose. And it was hidden from all people until God revealed it. And that's important because God had to personally reveal the mystery of the gospel to Paul in order for us to be able to understand it and move forward with it. And that mystery is that you and I are not rejected. That's the mystery. Remember, God brought us who were far off from him, who knew nothing of the gospel, nothing of God himself, And he revealed a a gospel, a way of salvation to us that we could not have ever gained otherwise. We didn't know anything about it. And those who did know about it had understood us to be completely and fully rejected from it, outcasted from it. But the mystery is that God sent his son to die on our behalf so that we who were abject sinners, abject people completely outside anything he had revealed 
of how to know him, right? The Old Testament shows not that we're saved by works, but that we're still saved by grace, still saved by faith, but that faith is shown through what we do in following the ordinances, in following the law, in following the sacraments and the sacrifices. And we knew nothing about that. And if we knew nothing about those, then we would end up violating them constantly. And so we needed something more. Beyond that, even those who knew of these things violated them constantly. They could not live up to it, which is why Christ had to come to fulfill the law so that we could be saved through grace because of his work of having done what was required of the sacrifice. That's the mystery. And it shows not only that God understands, but it shows a wisdom level that he has that nobody else possesses. And that is the purpose of the mystery. So we have the mystery, we have a purpose of the mystery, what it accomplishes, what it shows in us, and that's what we need to understand. Because because on a fundamental level, we have a basic understanding that the mystery of God, the mystery of the gospel is that we are saved and savable. That the people in this town are savable or saved. That it doesn't matter if you're the, the guy or lady who grew up in the church, who did everything right their entire lives, who was saved at an early age and never did any of the big, bad, nasty things. Or if you're that guy or lady who's never heard about Jesus and you're 30, 40, 50 years old, you've been in and out of jail, you've been in and out of trouble, you've been more in trouble than out of trouble. That person is in no different spot than us. Remember, the guy writing this was a murderer. Don't forget that. He was a persecutor of the church trying to destroy what Christ was doing in people. That's who he is. No, that's who he was. And God reached into the story of Paul, who we at that point called Saul, not because his name actually changed. That's a misnomer within the church. So if you think Paul's name changed from Saul to Paul when he became a believer, that's not accurate. Just so you know, his name was Saul in Hebrew. His name was Paul in Greek. And as he started doing all of his work to the Gentiles, he became known by what name? The name the Gentiles and Greeks would have called him, which was Paul. That's just a side note. That one was free. You don't have to pay me extra for that one. but that's who he was. And God reached into his story and pulled him out and did a work through him that we never would have imagined could have happened. That God changed the world through sending Christ. Not just the world, but the way we interact with the world. For what purpose? Right? It's great that he did that. I am so, so thankful that he did that. But to what purpose did he do that? Was it just so that you and I wouldn't have to go to hell? No. I mean, yes, that's what we get out of it. But that's not what it was for. We, we also have this idea that the gospel is this thing that, that those who aren't saved need. Sorry, those who aren't saved need. 
And the gospel brings them to a point of, of life and salvation in Christ, which is true partially. And that's the problem with partial truths. Partial truths seem accurate, but they're not full. They seem like they're true. They seem like they've got it, but they don't have the whole picture. If we were to flip to Philippians chapter one, there's a verse that we all know, but we need to look at it in the, in the terminology that we see in scripture. Philippians chapter one, verse six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in, in the day of Christ Jesus. This term, good work, and that's a cell phone. This term, good work, is what? What would the good work be? In terms of Christ, when he interacts with that mentality, he says that the work that he was to accomplish was that there would be belief in him. And if God started that, he says that he will bring it to completion, which means the gospel, what? Doesn't become irrelevant once we become believers. It becomes more fundamentally relevant to us once we become believers, and we can understand it more deeply and have it change us. Case in point, what did Paul have? He wrote this book or this letter to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, to the Galatians, to the Romans, to the Thessalonians, to Timothy, to Titus, to Philemon. What did he have as base material for it? The stories of the account of the gospel or story or life of Jesus. That's what he had. So when we look at it, we call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That is what he had. And from that stemmed all of the rest of the New Testament through the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. We must not miss that. But the base material that they had was the four Gospels. The stories of Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did. And from that, all of the growth of Christianity is built. And yet we inadvertently treat the gospel like it's mitigated to, well, that person doesn't know Jesus yet, so they need the gospel. But the gospel is supposed to be important to them and more fundamentally important to us. Because he who began a good work will complete it. This gospel that we have is the centerpiece of our lives, not just the centerpiece of our salvation, but the centerpiece of our growth and our life in Christ. Which is why it had to be revealed. Which is why it was a mystery, because the mystery isn't only that we get saved, but that we are fellow heirs with Christ, which means we have a future with him and with all of the Jews who were heirs of God, children of God. And he moves us forward into that position. Sounds like stuff we've already said. It, it almost, dare I say, sounds dry, because we're so almost inoculated by it and we're used to it. We don't understand the depth probably of our sin, but certainly of our salvation, of our need. But remember, we were, you were, I was dead in my sins. Absolutely, 
completely without hope, dead. And God reached in and through the gospel changed the world for us and brought us to a saving faith in him or brought us to an opportunity for a saving faith in him. So then what are we supposed to do? That becomes the question. What are we supposed to do with this reality of of being alive and unified in Christ? What do we do? Well, let's look at what Ephesians says. When you read this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of the saints." This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. The plan. Okay, so now we are at this plan. We we hear where he's going, and now he's going to reveal the plan of the mystery of the gospel hidden for ages, right? And the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The plan is that God would show his manifold, many multiplied wisdom through the church. us. Which means what? It's a great thing to say. Great idea to have. But what does it mean that God is showing the manifold wisdom, his manifold wisdom to the world, to even beyond just the world, but to the powers and authorities through the church? What does that mean? It means that we are the ones commissioned to reveal him. Who is we? You as an individual and me as an individual. But also us collectively. What does it mean That as an individual and collectively, we are to show the manifold wisdom of God, which is the gospel, which is the mystery of the gospel, which is us saved by grace through faith, though we are not Jews. What does that look like? It looks like obedience, right? We are called to be obedient to God, but in what way? Before we even jump into obedience, let's take a look at Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, verse 2. Job is speaking to the Lord who's revealed himself, admonished Job. Job apologized. God admonishes him again. And now Job replies. And he says, Then Job answered the Lord in verse 1 and said, 
I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay, it's important to understand that as we are to work out the the job that God has for us, we can't ruin it. We don't have that much power. I am not strong enough to ruin God's plan. You are not strong enough to ruin God's plan. Together, we are not strong enough to ruin God's plan. Isn't that both amazing and discouraging? Discouraging because I like to think that I actually do have a lot of power and control. I I like to think highly of myself. I, I think we all do. In fact, I know we all do. That's the sin of pride, which is fundamental to all people's brokenness, not fundamental to all people. There's a difference. We frequently say to err is human, right? It's not. To err is broken human. Every broken human errs, but we were not created to do that. We were not created with a prideful spirit But as broken people, it's natural to us that we have a broken spirit. It's normal to us because every person does. And so we all think ourselves pretty strong, capable, able to influence, able to do things. Even if we we don't see ourselves as high and mighty, we still imagine ourselves very capable of accomplishing or ruining things. But God's plan can't be thwarted. And if his plan is to reveal the mystery of his gospel through the church, what happens if we fail? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. God may remove the lampstand from our church, right? That's Revelation chapter two as he's writing to the Ephesians. He'll remove their lampstand if they don't comply with what he's called them to do, who he's called them to be. Does that thwart God's plan? No, he just uses someone else. Balaam wouldn't listen to God, so he used a donkey. The, the Ethiopian eunuch needed someone to share the gospel to him, so God teleported an apostle to him. He doesn't need us. He can do things that we can't do. But he uses us. And if we start with the understanding that we can't ruin his plan, then in boldness and confidence, which is what we see later in this passage, but with boldness and confidence, we can move forward trying our best to accomplish it, saying, you know what? If I fail, he still wins. He still gets what he wants, what he desires, even if I'm not the one to accomplish it. So I might as well just give it my best shot. It should take all of the pressure off of us. There's a thing that happens in golf tournaments when you're playing with a group of guys. If the first guy hits a great shot, it's pretty frequent that all the other guys hit pretty decent shots too. Why? Because they know it doesn't matter if their shot is good. They already have a good one. They can just swing and have fun. They don't have to feel the pressure of hurting their team because their team as a group already has a good shot. That's kind of what we have here. We have a position and a place where the shot has already been made. Now we just get to do it again for fun. We get to give it our best shot. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if it does, great. 
But that's what we're called to do. We are called to live in that sort of way because God's plan can't be thwarted. Well, what does he call us to do? He calls us to obey a commandment. And that commandment is that we love one another. To whom is that addressed? To the disciples and by proxy or by extension, us. And who are they to love? Each other. Not the world, but each other. So we can ask just a really simple question. If we were to just take a quick glance around the room, which you should do at this moment, just, just glance around the room, see who's here. Here's how you do that. You take your head, you turn it, and you look around. Just take a glance who's at who's here and ask yourself, do I show love to those people that I see? Do I show care? Do I show not the sort of affection that you show your intimate group of friends, but do I show deference and care for those people? Or do I show this group of people that I really just want things my way because my way is the way that I want things and so they should comply? That's the question. Do we show the kind of love for each other that other people could notice which means it's something that we do, not just something that we feel. Oh yeah, I feel very, very love for them. But do we show it? Do our actions display that or contradict that? Again, if we fail, that's not good, but God's plan isn't thwarted. Yet we're called to do it. We're called to love each other the way that Christ loved his disciples by serving them and showing care for them. We see in Ephesians 2 and 4 a unity that God puts for us. When we, we talk about following this, this command to love each other, he calls us to then be unified in that. And in chapter 2 of Ephesians, as we've already looked at, he calls us be, to be unified because he has made us one through the gospel, right? We all had the same starting point, which was death. Death followed by more sin, which gives us just more death. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, for if you do, dying, you will surely die. For in that day you eat it, you will surely die. But literally, it would say, dying, you shall surely die. To put all the emphasis on death, now, and future. Process and culmination. That's where we started. We're all saved by the same grace. Rome, or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast, right? We are saved by grace. We have the same starting point, which is death and sin. We have the same salvation point, which is salvation by grace through faith without us doing anything. So it's a position of humility. No matter how exalted as people in our culture we are, we start in a position of humility, utter and complete dependence. And if we started in the same point and we walk the same path to where we get to, we must be pretty much the same. And he's made one man out of the two, one person out of the two, out of the many. And then we come to chapter four, 
And we see in verses 11 through 16, we're not going to read the whole thing, but we see in verses 11 through 16 that God gave positions within the church to accomplish the purpose of the, the enclosed element of the body, which is growth in Christ. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, preachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So there's one thing, right? We're unified in the fact that we are to, as a result of what goes on, be equipped for ministry so that we would reach mature manhood, not childlikeness. Note that is different than saying childlike faith. This is childlikeness. We are not to be childish. We are to be mature in Christ, looking like him, because we've been equipped for ministry, ministry not just to each other, but to the world. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, tells us that, that we are to go and make disciples, because Christ has, given, has authority, has given authority. Now we go and make disciples of all nations, which does not mean that we make converts. It means that as converts are made, which is God's work through the Spirit, we make disciples. We work with them. How? This isn't a question of this moment, but look back at the last 30 to 50 years of church history and ask, as I've seen what goes on, what is the process of making disciples? The answer is classes and programs. That's what we've done. There's reasons for it. They're not all bad reasons. So this is not us standing or me standing here now being disparaging about what's happened in the past. That is not what we're speaking about. But what's happened is that was done for a reason, at a time, for a purpose. But now we stand in a spot where we don't need more things for people to come do. We need opportunities for people to become like Christ as individuals and then collectively as a group. Sometimes it happens in Sunday school. Sometimes it happens right here where there's what? I don't know how many of you are. More than 40. There's more than 40 of you here and we are together looking at a scripture passage which is programmatic in the sense that I have done all the work of sermon making and you are just showing up to listen. We've asked that you read the passage and dwell on it so that when we show up to listen and engage, we're also taking the knowledge that we have of the scripture, having put effort in ourselves. But by and large, I am the one who put the effort into this sermon for this moment. So we're not saying we're cutting everything that's Oh, Brock put that together, so no more church service. But this is only one aspect of how we equip the saints for the work of ministry. One aspect about how we help people grow to mature personhood, manhood in Christ. One aspect about how we make disciples of the nations, which is only just one aspect. So then what's the rest of it? What's the rest of it if it's not just this one hour on Sunday mornings or this two hours if you stay for Sunday school? Adult Bible fellowships. I will get terminology right here at some point. That's two hours out of your week. 
The rest of the time, when you're not sleeping, we can spend time engaging with an individual to know Christ more through that relationship that we can have with each other to point each other to Christ. You know what that's called? Discipleship. The world calls it mentoring. But if we're going to accomplish the purpose of the mystery, which is to show the manifold wisdom of God in not only how he brought us to salvation, but how he took people who were in total disunity and put them together as one to accomplish one purpose, then we grow with each other to know Christ, not just as a group and hope that it all happens, but as individuals. And then we take those individual growing moments and we put them together when we show up on Sunday mornings. We put them together when we go to Sunday school. We don't just hear a teacher teach to us, but we discuss and we grow together. And then we get together for lunch on Monday or coffee on Thursday. And you ask somebody how they're doing with those things in their life. Not just what information do you know. There's a lot of information that we know. The question becomes, what information that you know are you implementing and how is it going as you implement that information? As you implement what you know of Christ, what does it look like when you're at your job? How is it going? What does it look like when you're at your house? How's it going? What does it look like when life doesn't go your way? What does it look like when you're frustrated, when you're tired? What does it look like in those moments? Or do we sort of give the impression we only care about the moments that we're sitting in these seats? Because if this is the only unity that we, de that we derive, if this is the only place to find maturity, we are not succeeding as a church. We're succeeding possibly as an organization. But if you read the Bible, you won't find much about succeeding as an organization. You'll find a lot about succeeding as the children of God called his church, his bride. So are we succeeding? Are we spending that time to grow with individuals or... Or not? Is this a once weekly moment? Is this a just once daily moment? Or is this a consistent pattern in life moment? Because God will put people in your path that I will never get a chance to interact with. And he will put people in my path that you will never get a chance to interact with. And he put us there Remember the good works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them? He put us there so that we could fulfill his purpose in us with those people at, the, at that moment. Whether it's people who we already know and are already believers in Jesus. Or whether it's people we don't know and aren't believers in Jesus. Or whether it's people we do know and aren't believers in Jesus. Or whether it's people we don't know and are believers in Jesus. I think I covered everybody. He will put those people in your path for the purpose of refining and sharing the gospel. Sharing it to those who don't know it yet, refining it for those who do. So that his manifold wisdom would be made known and seen through us, the church, collectively and individually. 
so that the rulers and powers and authorities, which is the spiritual forces of the world, would recognize that he has won, that he has defeated them, so that the world would hear and believe in Jesus because he has unified us and through the mystery of his gospel made us one when we didn't deserve it and couldn't make it happen on our own. So we as a church move forward to accomplish that mission. Every other mission gets set aside. We accomplish the mission of growth in each other and the sharing of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to have your word, to be able to look at it, to be able to grapple with it, to recognize the mystery that you've made known in us and through us. And we ask, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in our hearts and lives as we do that, as we seek to accomplish the, the outcome of that mystery. God, we are desirous and inept at the same time. So we beg that you would use your spirit in us as individuals. We beg that you would use your spirit in this group as a whole to motivate us, to prompt us, to push us forward, to abandon everything that isn't you, but push forward to knowing you and making you known to the world around us. As we seek to follow you and know you, Lord, make your will evident to us, we pray. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.